Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Today I speak with Cory Doctorow, a Canadian-British blogger, science fiction author, activist and journalist, whose recent books include Attack Surface, a standalone novel set in the world of New York Times bestsellers Little Brother and Homeland, and How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, a work of non-fiction that explores conspiracies and monopolies. Having served as co-editor of the infamous blog Boing Boing, Cory maintains a daily blog at pluralistic.net and is an activist in favour of liberalising copyright laws and a proponent of the Creative Commons organisation, some of whose licences he has used for his books. A special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Cory is also an MIT Media Lab research affiliate and co-founder of the UK-based Open Rights Group, and serves as a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University and a visiting professor of practice at the University of North Carolina School of Library and Information Science. I've followed Corey's fascinating work for many years now, and when I came across some of his writing around surveillance capitalism, technology, and the ways in which monopolies are shaping our economic and civic possibilities, I just had to invite him onto the show. Corey, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. It's a pleasure. So I'd like to ask you the question that I always open these interviews with, which is to say, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now, if we can use that frame? Well, that's a good question. I have this model of change that I call the peak indifference model, where if you have a problem and you're not really sure that it's a problem and you're not sure what's causing it, it's easy to be indifferent to it. Uh, but if it's a real problem, it gets harder to be indifferent to it over time because it's a problem, right? Mm. So at first, you don't know whether there's a link between smoking and cancer. And if you smoke long enough, you'll get cancer, right? And at that point, you cease to deny the problem, right? The problem becomes undeniable. And the smoking and cancer example is an important one because the moment of peak denial, right? The moment at which like people stop denying it, like the number of people who deny it will just go down organically without anyone having to convince them because they'll be convinced by their own tumorous lungs. Mm. Um, that moment is beyond the point of no return, right? Like you, you really want people to reach peak denial at the point in which they can do something about it, not merely so that they can help themselves, but because if you're past the point of no return, then denial slides into nihilism, mm. right? Like if the, the, the moment at which you care about rhinoceros populations plunging is the moment in which there's only like one left at the London Zoo. Well, then you might as well find out what he tastes like, right? <laughs> Nothing, there's, no one's going to be able to save him at that point. Someone's going to eat him. Why not you, right? Oh, so we've all, I think, unfortunately known people, for example, who kept smoking after they developed cancer because as far as they were concerned, it was too late. Mm. And, you know, climate and inequality and other contemporary pathologies that constitute existential threats to our species and our civilization, those threats are in this kind of race between denial and nihilism. And uh, obviously, we will like admit that there's a problem eventually, even if no activist ever convinces anyone 
the evidence of their eyes will convince them. Uh, the evidence of their flooded homes and the wildfires and their privation and starvation and so on. All of that will convince them. And so what I think is going on in people's heads right now is the dance between denial and nihilism. And the question of whether if they admit to themselves the problem that is nagging at them as a potential source of real danger, whether they will then be plunged into despair because they will admit the problem but have no idea what they can do about it. That's my psychological diagnosis of our civilization. I guess it's quite cutting because it goes right to the heart of it and it really speaks to so many of the issues that we're now facing, not just about the, the climate and biodiversity crises, but others as well. Before we move more into those domains of discussion, I want to ask you another one, which is in the context of your family life and how you are raised, because I know that you come from a politically active family and you had access to computers from a very early age, which I imagine contributed to your fascination with technology and politics. So given the current climate and what you've just described as this dance between nihilism and denialism, where are you finding meaning at the moment? You know, I think that there is a burgeoning solidarity movement between people who are victimized by different aspects of the same underlying pathology. You know, the word neoliberal gets thrown around a lot, but this fundamental idea that some people are born to rule hmm. and other people are born to be ruled over, and that if you find your society is unjust or non-functional, you fix it by unfettering the hands of your ruling elite rather than by replacing them or by putting them in democratic chains where they have to be accountable to the people and explain their workings and not hand their PPE contracts to their eaten chums and so on. Yeah. And that expresses itself in lots of ways. I mean, one of the most obvious manifestations of that is the rise and rise of monopoly. Uh, 40 years ago, we had a dominant theory of monopoly that monopoly was bad because it was bad per se. That, that if you allowed a firm to mm. dominate a sector, the problem wasn't merely that it might raise prices. It was that it would gather too much power into the hands of people who were imperfect vessels, just like you and me. And that power would be unaccountable and that it would produce disaster. And 40 years ago, a kind of beloved court sorcerer of Ronald Reagan charmed him and Thatcher and Brian Mulroney in Canada, where I grew up, and Helmut Kohl and Augusto Pinochet. This guy's name is Robert Bork. And he said that uh, the only reason to fight monopolies is if they were going to create consumer welfare harms, by which he meant higher prices. And moreover, he said that the only way you could determine whether, say, two companies merging would produce these harms is to create a mathematical model that only he and his friends from the University of Chicago knew how to make and interpret. And strangely <laughs> enough, course. those models always showed that you should exercise forbearance and that even after the fact, if prices did go up after a theoretically anti-competitive merger, the only way you could know whether you could attribute those higher prices to the merger was again by consulting a model that only he could make. And he always found that it wasn't the monopoly that created the price hikes. And what that has resulted in is 40 years of forbearance over anti-competitive conduct that has gathered every industry into just a few hands. And sometimes the same hands cross sectorally. So, you know, there's three music publishers and three music labels, and the three music labels own the three music publishers. So it's not even six companies, just three, right? We have four major publishers of trade books, there's one professional wrestling league. And, you know, Vince McMahon, this kind of evil billionaire, Trump supporter, was able to buy all of his competitors and convert all of his employees, his performers, into contractors. Then he took away their health care because they weren't employees anymore. And now they're dying of work-related injuries in their 50s and begging on GoFundMe for pennies so they can die with dignity. 
And there are a lot of people who are angry about that because they love the wrestlers. And at the same time, there's a lot of people who are angry because mm. there's only two brewers left and two spirits companies. The Hollywood writers just finished a two-year-long strike over the fact that there's only four talent agencies left and they were screwing their writers. There's lots of people who are angry because there's only one eyeglass company left and they also own all the high street eyeglass retailers and all the brands and the largest insurer and they make more than half of the lenses. And there's people who are angry that there's four financial institutions. There's people really angry that there's only four accounting firms and that they all signed off on Carillion's paperwork so that their local governments collapsed. And they all think they're worried about different issues, right? They all think they're angry about something different. And what gives me hope is the burgeoning sense that they're actually all angry about the same thing. My friend James Boyle, who's a Scotsman who teaches at Duke University in North Carolina at the Center for Public Domain, he talks about this moment where we went from having a bunch of different concerns about the natural environment to thinking of them all as being part of the ecology movement. And that before the term ecology mm. came along, if you cared about owls and I cared about the ozone layer, it wasn't obvious why like your concern for charismatic nocturnal birds was in any way related to my concern about the gas composition of the upper atmosphere. And the term ecology turned a thousand fragmented issues into a single movement with a thousand constituencies who had each other's backs. And I think that we are approaching that in this moment for pluralism that cuts against monopoly and cuts against this right-wing ideology that some are born to rule and that the world is best when we find the best among us, when we create the meritocracy, winnow out the people who are never supposed to be in charge of their own lives, take the people who know better than the rest of us and give them as much power as possible to boss the rest of us around. Those are all related concerns. They all spring out of the same political ideology. They produce related pathologies. And they have, there's such a large constituency to oppose them. And what gives me hope is the idea that the, that constituency will come together. Mm. It's interesting hearing you talk about that because I've just started reading a beautiful book called The Book of Trespass by Nick Hayes, who is a British illustrator, folk musician, friend of one of my friends out here in Barcelona, actually. And one of the things he talks about is the ways in which lands were enclosed and people acquired power and wealth over generations and then removed the ability of what would have been called the commoners to thrive and live for themselves. And this generational amplification of servitude, of increasing swathes of the population. And I see how that actually cross-sects with what you're talking about in your thoughts about monopolies across all these different industries that we see in a modern context today, but actually they seem to be different facets of the same system. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, certainly enclosure dates back to the rise of mercantilism and the decline of the traditional hereditary aristocracy in mm. favor of a kind of aristocracy of, of great beasts. Mm -hmm. You know, whoever can enclose the most land and kick the most peasants off of it and graze the most sheep and command the most wealth from the growing textiles industry will become the new aristocracy. And it may come from people who are historically shut out of aristocratic circles and they are inclined to think of themselves as meritocrats. Mm. And it's funny because there is a sense in which they are, right? There is a sense in which they are in an environment to compete for who has the least empathy for other people and who is willing to commit the most heinous crimes against humanity to enrich themselves. And the winners do come out wealthy. But what's very interesting is these believers in meritocracy, which I'm sure you know was a term coined as a satirical term to make fun of British elites mm. and their belief in their own merit. It was coined by the person who uh, founded the university where I'm a visiting professor at the Open University in Milton Keynes. And it was subsequently taken on board as a kind of badge of pride by Tories. <laughs> and this idea of meritocracy is very interesting because it starts with the idea that each of us are born with different proclivities and society is a great system 
for winnowing out those whose proclivities make them destined to rule. But then when you start to get multiple generations of intergenerational wealth transfer and power, the conclusion they reach is not, oh, well, the system self-perpetuates and being a weak chin toff from Eaton does nothing to qualify you to rule. Instead, they go back to the aristocracy and they say, well, it must have been that whatever made my dad so rich was hereditary, right? That I have inherited in my good blood the mystic Medochlorians <laughs> that, uh, that make me a Jedi, right? And all belief in meritocracy is coterminal with a belief in eugenics mm. because the way that markets work is they preserve wealth intergenerationally irrespective of your contribution. And what that means is that in the long run, you will end up with the biggest predictor of your success in society being whether your parents were successful. And so if you believe in meritocracy, the only way to square those two facts is to conclude that something about the shape of your skull or the content of your blood has made you destined to rule. Mm. It's crazy how we buy into these mental models to justify all sorts of atrocities. I wonder also in the context of the last 18 months, so thinking about the pandemic and how that's wreaked havoc on businesses, whether you think there's going to be some kind of tipping point soon, kind of linking back to what you're saying about where you're finding meaning, whether you think there's going to be a tipping point with the ways in which the public are seeing that the monopolies are the ones like Facebook and Google and Amazon who have so benefited from the destruction of so many businesses and livelihoods. Do you think we're reaching a point where people are connecting these things together and thinking of alternatives or ways in which to maybe charter a path forward that means we don't have to rely on these big companies to, to get our needs met? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, there's different versions of this in different parts of the Anglosphere and then within the EU as well. There is certainly a lot more askance looking at companies that dodge tax. Mm. I remember the debate over Costa versus Starbucks and Costa paying its tax and Starbucks not paying its tax. And you had this made in Britain coffee chain success story. And then you had this American firm and that they were on fundamentally uneven footing because one of them just had to take 20% of its capital, 30% of its capital, and hand it off to the exchequer. And the other one got to reinvest it or return it to its shareholders in dividends or make its prices lower or what have you. And that was kind of laughed at at the time. There was a sense that, you know, you remember Donald Trump during the debates when Hillary accused him of not paying mm. any tax. Mm. And he said, that makes me smart. Mm. There were a lot of people who were like, well, they figured it out, haven't they? And I think that that's becoming less of a thing these days. There was a Twitter spat yesterday as we record this between, I forget what they're called, but there's a German delivery service, who I'm sure are terrible because all <laughs> the food delivery services are terrible. And then Uber Eats has just announced its entry into Germany. Mm. And the CEO of this German service tweeted something shady about Uber Eats. And Uber Eats fired back and said, you know, worry about your share price, not about what we're doing. And this guy fired back, you know, I could do great on my share price if I misclassified my workers as contractors <laughs> and didn't pay my taxes. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people cheered them on, yeah. right? I think a lot of people are making that connection. And so it seems like there's a growing suspicion of extremely large firms and people are ceasing to view the collapse that arises from large firms operating with impunity as a blip or as a extraordinary and rather as like the inevitable consequence. You know, back to that initial conception of monopoly, that monopolies are bad because even if they're not doing anything bad now, they will because power just shouldn't be unaccountably gathered into a few hands. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, the, the Greensill collapse is a piece of that. And just this morning, there was a wonderful piece in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about this Ukrainian oligarch who stole $500 billion, I think. I can't remember if it was billion or million. Maybe it was, no, $5.5 billion from a Ukrainian bank. He was a great ally of the current president of Ukraine. And he laundered it into the U.S. And we knew some of this before because some of this was in the FinCEN leaks last summer where it was revealed that Deutsche Bank had issued a press release right after its last money laundering scandal <laughs> saying we have now fixed our money laundering problem and the next day started laundering this guy's money yeah. and they laundered $225 million for him. But he smuggled $5.5 billion out of Ukraine and he used it to go on a shopping spree in the U.S. where he bought all these steel factories and he didn't buy them to make steel. He just bought them as a vehicle to hide cash flows. And then he ran them into the ground. Many of them exploded and maimed everyone who worked there. Ooh. And even the ones that didn't, everyone got made redundant. And then they just walked away from the plants with all their toxic waste piled up around them and poisoned the ground and the rivers that the people around them lived. And this is Trump country, right? This is the Rust Belt. And we've had a lot of talk and theorizing about the Rust Belt and where the desperation and anger and rage in the Rust Belt comes from and the left behind territories. And people have written very movingly about what's gone on there. And they're all right. But none of them have also mentioned, by the way, the international finance system abetted criminals who just went in and took like the productive capacity mm -hmm. of an entire region and used it as a prop in a shell game whose sole purpose was to launder a bunch of money they stole from somewhere else and destroyed that country too. And there's that old cartoon of the rich guy with the giant plate full of cookies and the middle class guy with two cookies and the working class guy with no cookies. And the rich guy says, look over there and steals the middle class guy's cookies and then points at the working class guy and says, he stole your cookies. Mm. That story is well understood, right? Like the immiseration comes from big rich people. But what we're now coming to understand, and I think it's part of the aftermath of the Trump scandals too, but also Greensill and so on, is that the idea that there's like the good billionaires who are merely rapacious sociopaths <laughs> and the bad billionaires who are criminals is starting to crumble. We're starting to see the understanding that the actual problem is just billionaires, that like, as they say, every billionaire is a policy failure. So how do we go about starting to address the balance? Because now we're talking about the ability to affect change to a system which is so deeply entrenched and with people who have such vested interests and power and wealth to keep things the way that they are or to continue to, to siphon wealth, how do we begin to unpick that? Yeah, it's a very hard question. There is this funny do or die moment that's approaching as, as the lockdowns start to lift in at least the wealthy world and the rest of the world struggles and so on where there is going to be catastrophic failure of small and medium-sized enterprises, and there is going to be an incredibly high level of unemployment. I would not be surprised in the least if in a year or six months even, we saw 30% real terms unemployment, maybe including some casual jobs, like so underemployment through the gig economy, where notionally you're employed, but you live in substarvation ways, and possibly your notional employment disqualifies you for benefits that might make up the difference. And the thing is that governments at that point are kind of going to have two choices, right? You can ignore that problem. I mean, that's what the Spaniards did after the great financial crisis. Mm -hmm. To be fair, they didn't do it for their own reasons. They did it in part because they were being pressurized by the Troika and also because that pressure resulted in the election of a central government that was incredibly cruel and callous. But if you do that long enough, your government collapses, Sometimes your society collapses. Like a country with 30% unemployment is not a stable configuration. Mm. 
it's the kinds of unemployment that preceded the Arab Spring, which, you know, whatever we want to say about how that turned out, it was a powder keg situation. You had these dictatorships that had been relatively stable for a long time, and something tipped them over. And some of that was the coordinative capacity of technology. But the reason there are so many people who are willing to risk everything to overthrow the system was because they were in such dire financial mm -hmm. straits. You know, this is a point Piketty makes in Capital, where he keeps comparing inequality levels and wealth distribution to France on the eve of the French Revolution. You know, there just comes a point where people no longer believe the story about why they should sit and starve while their betters feast. Mm. And when that happens, you fall into chaos. So some governments may fall into chaos, but other governments might just choose to create uh, full employment. And depending on your monetary arrangements and depending on the productive capacity of your society, the fiscal space it has to do stuff, what it can make, governments are able to spend a lot more than they have, particularly a lot more than they have over the last 40 years. As the modern monetary theory people say, the constraint is not spending, it's inflation. And the ECB and the Fed, they all say they don't know what causes inflation. They don't have a working theory of inflation. For a long time, they said it was debt. Now they know it's not debt. You know, they look at Japan and they say, well, how could it be debt alone if Japan has run these vast deficits for decades and not had hyperinflation? How can it be debt? We saw these crazy debt-to-GDP ratios following the great financial crisis and the bailouts. That debt has to be an incomplete story. And the way that the modern monetary theory people complete it is they say, well, it's the thing that governments are constrained by is what's for sale in the currency they issue and who else wants it. So by definition, the labor of everyone who lives in a country is for sale in the currency of that country. Everyone who lives in Canada sells their labor solely for Canadian dollars. And everyone who is unemployed in Canada has an asset that the private sector isn't trying to procure. So the Canadian government could just make some Canadian dollars and put those people to work, mm. right? Well, if we put 30% of the population to work, doing work that is disconnected from market activity, it completely changes the relationship of the finance sector to the rest of the world. Because right now, it is absolutely true that what the finance sector does has a huge impact on your livelihood and on your thriving. But not because they are essential to it, rather because they've interposed themselves in it. And if the finance sector were relegated to a boring technocratic corner <laughs> of our global complex system that allocated a fraction of all the capital that needed to be allocated towards productive activity as a way of solving certain allocation problems that might be hard to centrally manage with strong oversight, then the finance sector would return to something that was just merely odious instead of an existential threat. It would become that kind of sinecure for city boys who come from good families but aren't that bright <laughs> and want to be out the door at four o'clock and get five weeks summer vacation. Mm. The movements of financial markets would become the concern of slightly damaged weirdos and not something that people who have no look in to how those markets move have to care about because otherwise if the markets move the wrong way their sip collapses mm -hmm. and they will spend their senior years starving to death and homeless nor do they have to care about it because if the markets move the wrong way the employer that they rely on will collapse or be the subject of a hostile takeover. And the job they've depended on and that they've done and that they've created real value for their community and their employer and their shareholders for will simply disappear. 
right? That is a, that's a really exciting idea, mm-hmm. I think, but it's a long way off. As to how we get there, like tomorrow, what we do to make that moment come, I subscribe to this theory of change from the law professor Lawrence Lessig, the guy who founded Creative Commons and is always banging on about the commons. <laughs> if you like thinking about the commons, you should read Larry. And Larry says that there are four forces that shape our outcomes. He says there's code, the things that are technologically possible. There's law, the things that are lawful. There's norms, the things that are socially acceptable. And there's markets, the things that are profitable. All things being equal, if something is profitable, we'll get more of it. If something is technologically impossible, we won't get any of it. If something is technologically easy, we'll get more of it. If it's made easier still, we'll get more of it still. If things are socially unacceptable, we won't get as much of them. If being a city boy makes you unwelcome at a nice dinner party, then people will just be less interested in doing PPE at Oxford and then getting a job destroying global economies by shuffling numbers around on a spreadsheet. When you are trying to solve this problem, when you are trying to move to a future that you want, when you're trying to ascend a gradient towards a better world, and you find that you can't think of a single thing to do that will nudge you and the people around you towards that better future, I think it's worth asking yourself, am I pushing on one of those four levers? And is there another one I could push on? You know, am I sitting here trying endlessly to get my MP or counselor or MEP to pass a regulation or a law or hold a hearing, and it's not getting me anywhere? Could I instead organize my neighbors to just have a group whose mission was to assert plainly that it is not acceptable that, say, our home is clad in highly flammable cladding that puts us at risk of dying, Mm. right? Yeah, we might have a notional demand on our lawmaker, but really what this is about is making everybody understand the foundational injustice of this circumstance. A world in which something is widely viewed as a foundational injustice is a world in which we are more likely to get a a shift in our laws. And so it may be that you have to cut over to a different tactic. I'm one of the world's worst parallel parkers, and I live in Los Angeles, and sometimes I have to parallel park. I know that sometimes you have to crank the wheel really far over in one direction just to get a millimeter of play. But then when you get that millimeter, you can use it, you can work off of it inch by inch, millimeter by millimeter, maneuver by maneuver to get closer and closer to your goal, even if it's not a smooth path, even if it's a lot of work to gain a little ground. And, you know, I think that as a novelist, I'm capable of appreciating that the world does not work like a plot in a book. There isn't a clean path from A to Z. Sitting down and trying to figure out the way a novelist might, how do I get these characters, me and my friends, from here to the climax and the denouement that I'm hoping for, is great when you're telling a story. But if you're trying to actually plot a course through the world, Hmm. the act of mapping the course you will take through the world will take so long that by the time your map is done, the world will have changed and the map will be worthless. And so instead, you have to ascend a gradient. You have to have a rule of thumb. You have to know which direction you're headed in and have faith that if you can ascend the gradient a little, if you can climb one step towards your goal, that you may find yourself standing in new terrain. And from that vantage point, you may be able to see another step you can take. And that step is hidden until you take the first mm. step. You know, you may, you may have to tread water after the ship sinks, because even though it's not likely that you will be rescued, the only way to get rescued, the necessary but insufficient precondition for getting rescued is to tread water, so to take one affirmative step towards the future you're hoping to arrive at. Mm. So talking about 
your books and the ways that you navigate these complex themes. One of the themes that you dive into and that you explored at depth in your book, How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, is precisely some of these shifts that we're seeing in terms of the conspiracies and the monopolies. So I wonder, what does surveillance capitalism mean to you and what moved you to write this book? Well, I was moved in part because a bunch of write-on people who I like were taking on board a theory that I thought was flawed. The theory of surveillance capitalism that Shoshana Zuboff developed. Mm -hmm. Zuboff popularized the term. It was actually coined by some Canadian leftist uh, social scientists who did a journal issue where they used the term, but Zuboff either independently reinvented it or adopted it and described this theory of surveillance capitalism as a rogue capitalism, where she said there's a good capitalism, and that's the capitalism where you have lots of market actors who have information about their proclivities and about their tastes and about their needs, and they make bids and offers and acceptances to one another. And those price signals are aggregated through the kind of automatic process of the market to do efficient allocations so that in the long run, we're all better off. But it relies on people having free will. And Zuboff says that when surveillance companies, when, when ad tech companies are able to hoover up huge amounts of our data and process and analyze it, mm. they can figure out how to trick us to coerce us, to bypass our critical faculties so that we end up doing things that don't represent our free choice, but instead are representative of what they want our choice to be. And I think that this is a mistake. The evidence that Zuboff cites for this belief that big tech made a mind control ray <laughs> is all from big tech's own boasts about how good its products are. If you buy an ad with us, people will buy the thing mm. that you are taking the ad out mm. in because we're really good at convincing people with ads. That is a highly partisan claim that is self-serving. And the evidence that backstops it is also very, very thin. Like, for example, Zuboff cites a Google patent. And I don't know if she appreciates the extent to which patents are incredibly flimsy evidence. Patent offices starting in the 1990s began to allow software patents. And those software patents largely consist of, here is a thing that I've thought of doing dot, dot, dot with a computer. <laughs> And so no matter how novel or obvious it is, no matter how possible it is, they granted these patents. And the reason, you know, and I say this as someone who used to be a delegate to WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is the UN specialized agency that coordinates the world's patent offices, the patent offices are self-funding. They're funded by applicants. Mm. So when you apply for a patent, you pay for the application. That's where the patent office gets the money to pay the examiners. And then they kick a commission up to WIPO. It's like the mafia. <laughs> The patent office is incentivized to grant patents. And, the, you know, their attitude is largely like, grant them all and let the courts sort them out. So you have all these overlapping patents, patents that describe impossible things. You know, the U.S. Patent Office grants patents for perpetual motion machines and time machines and zero-point energy machines. Oh. And they don't require that you present a working model. And they assume that there's no harm and no foul. And so here we have Google filing a patent for a mind control ray. And I think that Given that everyone who's ever claimed to have made a mind control ray was either bullshitting themselves or the rest of us, we should assume, all other things being equal, that just because the patent issued, it's still not true, right? Especially because Google benefits from being able to tell its customers that it has a mind control mm -hmm. ray. And she does cite some peer-reviewed evidence. There's a, a study that Facebook did where they non-consensually subjected 60 million people to an intervention that was supposed to increase the likelihood that they would go out and vote. 
And they found that in the experimental arm, about decimal 4% more of the people than they would have expected did record that they went out and voted. Now, 60 million people times decimal 4 is several hundred thousand votes. That sounds very impressive. You know, several hundred thousand votes is a big number. If it were all in one race, it might even sway the race. It wasn't, right? It was spread out across 60 million polling places. And certainly, we should be concerned that a company that claims to have the nous and ethical center to be the supreme dictator of 2.6 billion people's social lives conducts non-consensual psychological experiments Mm -hmm. on tens of millions of them. But we should be like singularly unimpressed with a 0.4% effect size for a, a behavioral intervention, not least because most behavioral interventions reduce inefficacy over time. Mm-hmm. If you ever like wander around East London and the warehouses, the old brick warehouses that have been turned into luxury flats, you'll see these lovingly preserved peeling painted advertisements from the Victorian era on the side. And it will say, you know, pawn soap, 5P, you will be clean. Yeah. And it's pretty clear that, like, you will be clean once sold soap, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have painted it on the (laughs) side of the building, right? It's also pretty clear from, like, the state of soap advertising today, you know, Link's body spray will make you a love god, (laughs) that, like, pretty clearly, you will be clean is a message that we wised up to a century and a half ago. The novelty has worn off. Yeah. And so, you you know, if Facebook can figure out how to get 0.4% people who weren't going to go vote to vote, with an intervention, in the absence of evidence to the contrary, we should at least contemplate the possibility that the next time they make that intervention will be 0.2%, right? So again, this is not a real threat to our free will. But I think Zuboff is correct in noting that privacy matters and that our free will is being compromised by tech companies, but not through incredible manipulations, but rather through crude monopoly. If you want to know the answer to a question, chances are you type it into Google. Mm. Google has 90% of the search market. It got and retained that market through a bunch of monopolistic tactics. You know, Google is not a company that makes products. Google is a company that buys products, right? They've made one and a half successful products. They made a search engine, a Hotmail clone. Everything they made internally was a failure. Every successful thing they've done, including like the ad tech stack, but also their mobile platform, Android and YouTube and all the rest of it, all that stuff is stuff they bought from someone else that before Robert Bork, they would have been prohibited from buying. So Google, by doing monopolistic things, has ensured that it always answers your questions. And if it's wrong or if it's malicious, or if it's been suborned or hacked or tricked or ordered by a government to give a wrong answer. You know, the Polish government wants Google to never answer that Poles were complicit in the Holocaust. (sighs) My father, stepfather, whose entire family was murdered by their Polish neighbors in Łódź, would like to differ. If that were the case, right, if it maintains it through monopoly, then it has an iron grip on our discourse and our beliefs, but not because it bypassed our critical faculties. And likewise, Facebook, right? Why are we on Facebook? Because our friends are there. Facebook has taken them hostage. Why are our friends on Facebook? Because we are there. And indeed, the act of hostage taking is mutual. Mm. We could see an intervention like the ones that are contemplated by the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act in the European Commission, or the Access Act in the American Congress, or in the Competition and Markets Authority report in the United Kingdom that might force Facebook to be interoperable. So you could leave Facebook, but still talk to your Facebook friends. Mm. But as it is, the behavioral impact of locking all of your friends in a walled garden is much larger than a 0.4% effect size. And it's just a monopoly tactic. 
you know, there was a point in which people were rallying to leave Facebook. Uh, millennials were angry that their parents had arrived on Facebook, so they <laughs> yes. left for Instagram. And Mark Zuckerberg bought Instagram. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting with these platforms also is that they undermine, I don't know if you're familiar with self-determination theory and our desire sure. for autonomy, competence and relatedness. But what's amazing about what you've just described about Facebook and some of the, the sites that seek to emulate it is that it makes us completely... Uh, impoverished in each of those three domains. We can't be competent. We don't have the skills or the technology to break out of the system or have contact with people once we've left. It doesn't give us the agency to make our own choices because it's a walled garden. So really, there's not much that you can do. And also the social forces are such that you don't want to leave your friends, which ties us into the relatedness aspect, Yeah, which is that to relate with people and feel like we belong and feel good and well, if our social networks are all concentrated on one platform and there's no impetus for everyone to leave all at once because of network effect, there's no reason for us to... So it just, it completely cripples each of those three elements, which is just, it's a phenomenal bind. That's, I think that's entirely right. And, you know, there's a left critique of being pro-competition that says that it just fetishizes some efficient markets hypothesis. And I don't think that's why progressives should care about competition. We should care about competition only to the extent that it promotes technological self-determination, mm -hmm. right? The ability to configure and reconfigure the technologies that you use so they suit the needs of you and your community. You know, it may be that you yourself aren't personally qualified to make those reconfigurations, but that fact is not made better by... A social circumstance that says if you found someone who was prepared to make those reconfigurations, that they would face felony prosecution for bypassing an access control, violating a term of service, or doing something else that has been prohibited in the service of maintenance of monopoly. Mm -hmm. And so again, you know, if Zuboff wants our self-determination, she should care about this. But instead, she ends up heaping praise on Apple for the App Store. Because she says, you know, markets are good. Apple made a market. It's got the app store. And that market is producing, you know, self-worth and it doesn't lead to surveillance and so on. And she's wrong on all counts. First of all, the self-determination that you're able to exercise in a world where you're only allowed to buy your apps from one vendor and that vendor mm -hmm. makes arbitrary and capricious decisions about what's for sale, that self-determination is pretty cramped. But on top of that, the idea that you're not being surveilled by Apple is only true in the very limited sense that if you don't live in China, you're not being surveilled by Apple. But if you do live in China, Apple has taken orders from the Politburo to remove all the functional encryption tools, privacy tools, from the App Store. They've designed their phones so that once it's been removed from the App Store, you can't use anyone else's App Store that might supply you with that. And China did that so that government censors and government security agencies could snoop on you and figure out whether to stick you in a gulag in Xinjiang province and subject you to non-consensual medical experimentation, punitive rape, and forced labor. The fact that you're not being spied on with Apple's complicity to sell you soap doesn't matter, right? Mm. They're still capable of spying on you and there's still a reason they're doing mm. it. And the idea that we have to choose between being spied on by Apple only in these circumstances and being spied on by Google and these other ones, this what Bruce Schneier calls the feudal security model, although uh, my friends tell me that it's really manorial security model, that's what the historians say, where there are bandits in the world, right? There are bad people out there who want to do bad things to you through your technology. That's like unequivocally true. And then a giant tech company offers to defend you by moving you into its fortress. And that works great unless they decide to do a deal with the bandits or they decide they don't like you anymore. Yeah. In which case, you know, the Joker, uh, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. The, the wall garden becomes a killing field. And we can aspire to more than that. Like self-determination shouldn't be the choice from among five giant monopolists. It should be the choice to reconfigure your technology, even if it makes the monopolist sad. And so that's the point I try to get at with how to destroy surveillance capitalism, 
that if we accept this council of despair that says that, you know, Google made a mind control ray to sell your nephew a fidget spinner and Robert Mercer stole it and made your uncle a QAnon racist, then we are at best what we can do and what we can hope for and really what Zuboff prescribes is to suborn these large tech companies to serve as arms of the state, to follow some of the examples of the European Union where they've done things like pass the terror regulation and the copyright directive, where you have these problems that were created by the tech giants and then they're required to solve Mm. them. And we know how that works with monopolists because this is what happened with the Bell system, with AT&T in the US for 100 years before they were finally broken up. Every time they would just step over the line and people would be angry enough that there was political will to do something about them, they would offer to solve the problem. They would offer to be an even more important part of America's national security and safety apparatus. And in so doing, they would acquire these powerful stakeholders that relied on them to solve that problem. And then when they stepped across the line again and did something even worse, when the competition regulator would step in, someone else in government would 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 check them and say, I'm sorry, in the case I'm thinking of in the 1950s, the FTC was finally ready to break up, or maybe it was the DOJ, it was finally ready to break up AT&T. Mm. And the Pentagon came in and said, they're our national champion and we will lose the war in Korea if you break up AT&T. Now they lost the war in Korea anyway, <laughs> and they shouldn't have been there in the first place, but AT&T got 30 years more of monopolization out of it. The answer to big tech is not big mm. tech. The answer to big tech is smaller tech. So given all of that then, what vision of the future are you holding? Oh, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I just finished a novel called The Lost Cause, which is my post-Green New Deal utopian novel. Oh, amazing. And it's a kind of complicated utopia because it's about uh, truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias (laughs) in Burbank, where I live, just outside of Los Angeles, which is a little 100,000-person city that is small enough that from most of it you can see the city of L.A. And it's in the county of L.A., but it's politically independent and it has lots of interesting characteristics because of that. Imagine if Brighton were like half the distance to London. (laughs) Uh The book is a book that tells a future history that starts around now deliberately, deliberately tells a story that I knew would be contrafactual, in which a set of incredible coincidences kicks off what they call the Canadian miracle. So there's a disarray in the two major parties that allows the Social Democratic Party to run up the middle. You know, there's a grotesque corruption scandal in one and there's a leadership fight in the other. And so the Social Democratic Party, the New Democratic Party, runs up the middle. And NDP is a little like labor for good and ill, Mm -hmm. right? It's got its left tendency and it's got its Blairite tendency and so on. It happens at a moment, a bit like the Corbyn moment, where someone who is really unlike the party leadership of the last couple of decades happens to stumble into party leadership. It's a woman who's Road Grant Métis, which are uh, a kind of indigenous people in Canada who've been particularly hard done by in the Canadian story. They were mixed race, the French trappers, the French voyageurs, and indigenous people Mm -hmm. had this kind of Creole culture called the Métis. And they've been a source of radical rebellion. Louis Riel, who's our, I don't know, not our Guy Fox, but maybe our John Brown, was famously a Métis and led an incredible, inspiring historic rebellion. Mm -hmm. So this woman becomes the Prime Minister of Canada. And the first thing that happens when she becomes Prime Minister of Canada is the city of Calgary, which is in the center of oil country in Canada, is washed away by a flood, which is a thing that keeps happening to Calgary, because in true petro-state fashion, their government consists largely of a hole in the ground surrounded by guns. 
And so whenever they have an idea like, should we allow property developers to build in this floodplain? They're like, the market will sort it out. <laughs> and so you have this giant rich city that washes away every couple of years. And this is the worst. And so she basically says... This is the beginning of Canada's reform. We've lost one of our great cities. We're going to rebuild it out of the floodplain. We're going to rebuild all of our coastal cities because they're all sacrifice zones. We're going to have to relocate every coastal city in the country 20 kilometers inland in the next 200 years. We're going to start now. We're going to build a national high-speed rail service and retire most of our aircraft. Wow. We are going to do all of it, and we're going to do it by reorienting the productive capacity of our nation to this, as we would if we were on a war footing. They, they call the forces that do this, that are akin to the National Defense Forces during a, a war, TA or, or what have you, they call themselves the Blue Helmets, and they call what ensues the Canadian miracle. And just as with the Spanish Civil War, People of good will from all over the world flock to Canada to participate, and they then dissipate all over the world and bring the blue helmet phenomenon to the rest of the world. And it kicks off a series of political and technical reforms aimed at ensuring the long-term survival of our species on Earth. Mm. The novel opens 15 years after that, when the, the transformative American president has served her two terms, her lame duck vice president, who she was stuck with as a way of balancing the ticket with a boring white dude... <laughs> serves his term disastrously. Mm -hmm. And the American right has found a nut job, ultra conservative Mormon woman from Utah to make president in the same way that they, you know, replace the first radical black jurist in the Supreme Court with a super conservative, incredibly retrograde black jurist and how they took Ruth Bader Ginsburg and replaced her with a hyper-religious Middle Ages style jurist mm -hmm. and so on. So they've, they've done the same maneuver. And the curtain raises on this, where they're, they're dealing with this. And the generation that the story tells the story of is a generation that has been told and sometimes believes that they're the first generation in a century that doesn't fear the future. Not because they don't see all the same things we see when we look into our future, right? Floods and fires, zoonotic plagues, refugees, famine, and so on, right? But because they're no longer passengers on a bus that is barreling towards a cliff, whose driver refuses to turn the wheel mm. because they are finally stepping into the breach because they know that the people who die of the Zunitic plague or the fire or the flood, that their memories will be served by doing something to avert a crisis like that in the future. And I think that's the best we can hope for at this point. It's a science fiction novel and not a fantasy novel, which is why climate change isn't solved in the book. It's addressed, but not solved. Because the reality is, like, we've put so much thermal energy into the oceans that I think the ice caps are toast. We can do a lot of things, but we're not going to repeal the second law of thermodynamics. And when the ice caps are toast, the coastal cities are toast. I mean, there's just nowhere else for the water to go. And that means that the place where humanity has made the majority of its homes mm -hmm. for the majority of hominid history will become underwater, right? Will become uninhabitable. The best we can hope for is to get our stuff out, rescue our treasures. There's a whole bunch of sequences about reinforcing the Thames estuary uh, barrier and getting everything out of the Tate oh, wow. and the Houses of Parliament when they flood. But you know what? There is a story to be told that is not an entirely unhappy story that goes like this. We looked into our future and we saw that the Houses of Parliament would sink. And we saw that the treasures of the Tate would be washed away. And we went and we saved them. And we saved the people. And we built the city so that it wouldn't happen again. And we learned the lesson so that it wouldn't get worse. And we made ourselves resilient. 
and we made ourselves welcoming to those whose homes would be lost from the floods that we couldn't prevent. And we built a society that learned its fucking lessons, <laughs> right? That is not a pessimistic story. It's a story that's sad sometimes. I think it's a fundamentally hopeful story. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that's the future we're going to have. But when I think about what the best future we could ask for is, it looks a little like that. And so envisioning that future that you just described and to finish this conversation, what question would you want people to dwell with at this moment? Remember I said that the theory of antitrust pivoted from a theory of democratic harms to a theory of consumer welfare harms. Mm -hmm. And there was a, an extent to which people on the progressive side embraced this conception of consumerism as a political theory, right? We said, we are living in this world where firms really want our business. And if we tell them we're going to boycott their products unless they clean up their act, they might. And they actually did, right? 40 years ago, that happened. But it only happened because there was competition. And now there isn't competition. So go down your grocery aisle and pick up a product. And chances are it comes from one of two firms, right? It's either Unilever or Procter & Gamble. So if you were to say, well, I am angry that Procter & Gamble overpackages its biscuits, I'm only going to buy low-packaging biscuits from now on. If you look closely at the wrapper of your low-packaging biscuit alternative, you'll find that Procter & Gamble made it. Mm -hmm. Right? So you have done nothing to change Procter & Gamble's behavior. And of course, whenever Procter & Gamble buys a small beloved brand of whatever organic nappies <laughs> and they do a press release, they say, well, we've done it because we know that consumers value choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we can ask for better than being ambulatory wallets. We can ask to be recognized as citizens who can make a difference beyond buying and not buying, not least because if you vote with your dollars and the people with the most dollars get the most votes. So ask yourself what you can do to be a citizen today. Ask yourself what movement you can join. If you're worried about the climate, maybe spend a little less time sorting your recycling and a little more time finding a community group that's putting pressure on local government to make systemic changes like improving transit. Because you are never going to recycle your way out of climate change, but you might be able to reform agricultural practices and transit and commercial practices, energy generation, and so on in ways that will make profound differences. And if you throw every tin can you drink out of into a landfill for the rest of your life, but manage to get one new bus route put into your city, you will probably have netted out ahead, right? So stop thinking of yourself as a consumer taking individual actions and find a way to make common cause with your neighbors to take collective action. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>